This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Sita Hariharan. She is the general manager and group head at the Digital Software and Solutions Group at Tata Consultancy Services. And we are speaking with her today about Smart Cities, a toolkit for leaders, uh, a special report that we produced collaboratively recently. Sita, thank you so much for joining us today at Knowledge at Wharton. Mughal, it's so great to be here, particularly talking about Smart Cities, a topic that you and I are quite passionate about. Exactly right. So uh, again, thanks so much for being here. Uh, I wonder if we can start with a very basic question. What is a smart city? What, was, what did the concept meet, mean originally and how has it evolved over time? And thank you for having me, Mukul. I mean, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, let's look at some data. If you look at uh, uh, smart cities and the number of smart cities between 2002 and 2015, it had quadrupled across the globe from approximately 21 to 88. At the end of 2017, about 178 cities embarked on 250 smart city projects from Melbourne to Copenhagen to San Francisco. This data suggests that there is this rapid urbanization across the globe, and there are leaders in the municipalities and cities that are trying to figure out how to cope with this rapid uh, urbanization. And as you rightly said, the definition of smart cities has evolved over the last couple of decades in the first phase uh, when smart cities started uh, to be discussed in the public forum. Technology players looked at some of the challenges that were created by the urbanization. So they said, let me create uh, point product solutions addressing the various challenges, which is what technology players do, uh, related to parking, mobility, water management, lighting, and so on. So that was the phase one. However, as many city leaders lamented, Technology players didn't quite understand how the city would consume those solutions. So came the second phase when the city leader said, let me take control of the technology agenda for my city. And uh, however, there were two things uh, that were lacking. Number one, uh, collaboration across the various departments of the city. And number two, Uh, keeping citizens at the center of everything that they do, so collaboration with the citizens. Uh, So now we are in the third phase of uh, smart city definition. I'm quite excited about that, Mukul, because cities leaders are saying that I want to create cities that are livable, uh, that uh, focus on the well-being and happiness of my citizens. So it is a citizen-centric agenda that is evolving. And uh, one of the examples that come to mind is a place that you visited last year for your vacation, Iceland. And the capital city of Iceland, Reykjavik, uh, developed a program right after the 2008 financial crisis called the Better Reykjavik uh, Program that uh, is a platform, by the way, which gives voice 
to the citizens in policy making. And there are other examples in San, San Antonio as an example, with their highway signboards and Beijing with a I Love Beijing app that can be used by the citizens to report either power outages, broken street lamps, or potholes to the government. I'm really glad you mentioned the idea of a platform because I was very curious to see how, how you think of smart cities functioning as platforms that enable collaboration between different group of, groups of stakeholders. And I was wondering if you could speak about that a little bit more. Yeah, so if you start with uh, being citizen-centric, that provides the right uh, motivation to drive the right behaviors, uh, take the right action. And collaboration, yes, is absolutely needed across the various departments of the city, but it is also needed with the citizens and private enterprises as well. So if you look at the linkage as an example between water management and uh, traffic management, or between event management in a city and city commerce, it becomes quite apparent as to why such a collaboration is really essential. As an example, if there is a water pipe breakage in one part of the city, you really want to divert traffic in that part so as to avoid traffic jams or congestion in that part. And similarly, when the city is hosting, let's say, a football match or a popular music concert, uh, one thing that isn't obvious is while the city will improve its, uh, enhance its safety and security measures, what is not clear is how does it relate to city commerce? As an example, the retailers will do well if they can increase the foot traffic in the areas where such special events happen. What that does for the retailers is it increases the revenues for the retailers. Not just that, uh, it increases the revenue for the city because of the taxes. So the collaboration across the various departments of the city is absolutely essential, and having a unified platform, as you said, will drive that collaboration. But as you and I know, we also have to collaborate, the city has to collaborate with the citizens, as well as with private enterprises and academic institutions. And one example that comes to mind is how uh, Arizona's Institute for Digital Progress has set up the structure. Um, they have a unified leadership structure that uh, drives collaboration across the various municipalities, authorities, academic institutions like the Arizona State University, as well as private sectors like Google, uh, Uber, Cisco, Intel, in order to tackle some of their traffic congestion problems. I'm really glad you brought up leadership because it seems to me that the role of the leadership is very crucial in, in making a city smarter, at least smarter. Uh, how do mayors and other civic leaders go about setting priorities uh, that define how a, a city becomes smarter across different dimensions of its operations? You're right, Mukul. Mayors play uh, such a critical role. Uh, I was watching a documentary several years ago uh, from HPBO, which is called The Weight of the Nation. This documentary takes you through the neighborhoods of Columbus, Ohio, particularly Lyndhurst and Huff. They're about uh, eight and a half miles apart. And as you drive through these neighborhoods, the life expectancy drops by approximately 24 
years. And it's not so unique to Ohio. You see, uh, when you take a tube ride in London uh, from Oxford Circus to Silver Lane, which is about 15 minutes train ride, the life expectancy drops by approximately 15 to 20 years. Wow. Two neighborhoods that mm. are so close to each other but so far apart. The question is why? Mm. An obvious answer is yes, there is a healthcare disparity between these two communities, but as you and I know, the healthcare disparity doesn't come by itself. It's mm. also because of the disparities in education, um, housing, food access, and uh, possibly workforce development. Mm. So mayors, as you rightly asked, they have a crucial ro role to play in terms of addressing some of these real-life challenges and balancing that with driving economic growth for the cities. So they need to do that, in my view, uh, in three steps. Number one, they need to first define a clear vision for their city in a very simple manner. I'll use an overused example here, but a powerful one. One of the former mayors of Barcelona, Mr. Aero, said that his vision was to create a dancing Barcelona, a city where the visitors felt welcome, the streets were well lit, the city smelled fresh, and the citizens and the visitors were safe and happy. You know, this powerful, simple vision drove the choice of, uh, choice of technologies for Barcelona, whether it be in mobility, parking, lighting, uh, energy management, or security, and even waste management for the city, right? So to start with, the mayors need to define uh, in simpler terms uh, what their vision is for the city. The second, of course, as we discussed earlier, is collaboration with the citizens and driving initiatives that are citizen-centric. Uh, that becomes very important uh, as a second, next uh, step. And the third is the mayors need to understand the local and political context, which I think they are quite adapted. Uh, so if, if let's take an example. In San Francisco, a few years ago, they implemented a dynamic pricing for their parking system. Mm. LA is implementing a similar system called LA Park, but this expansive and expensive in-street uh, sensors, garage sensors, smart meters, and all of the technologies that are required to dynamically calculate the pricing for the parking isn't suitable for smaller cities. Mm -hmm. Smaller cities can do by using um, data, transaction data that they collect, as well as some uh, manual surveys that they could do quite occasionally. And uh, so it is really important for mayors to understand the local and political context instead of getting excited and trying to figure out these solutions work somewhere else, can I replicate it in my city? So those are the three steps I would say that the mayors need to consider, but also balance the resources that are available to them between serving the citizens and addressing some critical challenges and driving economic growth. I'm glad you brought up the challenges that mayors face because one of the biggest challenges that many of them seem to be facing these days is how to handle the influx of new uh, people. It, it, it could either be immigrants coming from other countries or it could be 
just an influx of people from the hinterlands, the, the rural areas, into the cities. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how mayors and other civic leaders can deal with these challenges in a smart and, and also an inclusive and compassionate manner? Absolutely, Mukul. Uh, let's look at some data. Uh, if we look at places like Asia, Africa, and Latin America, every hour of every single day, nearly 1,000 people are moving from the rural areas to urban areas. Mm -hmm. If this were to continue, we would have to build a city as large as London, one every month for the next 33 years. So this is what is causing the rapid urbanization phenomena that many of them are talking about. And uh, it puts a lot of pressure, as you and I know, on the city's limited and scarce resources. But there is one other critical issue at play that many of us are overlooking, which is the growing disparity gap across the various regions of a nation. So if you look at the US here, the bigger communities today are growing at a much faster pace, and they're also contributing overall to the nation's growth more than ever before. And uh, these bigger communities are being powered by well-educated millennials and the agglomeration of trends caused by digital technologies, right? And these are happening as uh, some of the smaller metros wane and the rural areas are sliding into deep decline. And if you just look at the US in the last couple of years, more than half of the jobs that have been created because of the digital technologies have gone to the bigger metros, the top 20 metros here in US, which is only home to one third of the American population with the usual suspects of New York, Boston, the Bay Area, Seattle, Washington, D.C., followed by the Sun Belt hubs of um, Atlanta, Dallas, Miami, and Orlando. So in this context, the mayors have two key imperatives. Number one, make a regionally balanced growth a priority. It's not a very difficult task to do. It is just that the leaders have to consciously say that I'm going to drive economic cohesion. And it's not a novel idea either, because if you look across the pond, the European Union said that I'm going to allocate one third of my budget between 2014 and 2020 to the cohesion policy a program that will allow some of the lagging regions to catch up. So that should be a key imperative for the mayors. The second is uh, make reskilling a priority. Mm. There has been a lot of talk about machine learning, artificial intelligence, robotics, and automation getting to the factory floors. Mm. The jobs of tomorrow will not be the same as jobs of today or yesterday. Even the white-collar jobs will get disrupted. If you go and look at the historical data, one thing is certain, whenever the public sector investment is directed towards the human capital, that has always led to prosperity, right? Uh, in three decades following 1910, uh, US spent a lot of uh, its funds, public sector funds, in educating the citizens. So the high school graduation rate in that period went from 
17% or 18% to 73%. And the graduation rate went from 9% to 51%. Mm. It's an amazing growth in just a very short period of time. Mm. So what, what, does, what did that mean? Um, it meant that for U.S., the citizens were highly educated and their income was substantially higher in comparison to the counterparts, uh, some of the other industrialized countries at that period of time. In my view, if we can do it then, we should be able to do it now, particularly given access to many of the digital tools that we have at our disposal. You mentioned digital tools, and <clears throat> one of the, uh, of course, digital technologies are spreading everywhere. And one of the effects of digitalization is that it throws up vast amounts of data. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how data analytics and collaborative data sharing can enable smarter decision-making about uh, uh, you know, cities. So data is by far the most valuable asset nowadays that private enterprises have as well as public sector has. Right. So whether you're driving through a traffic light or paying a utility bill or uh, browsing a city's website or calling a city department or even dumping garbage into your neighborhood dumpster, mm -hmm. the city collects so much of uh, data about you. If the data is mined properly, then the city can use that, of course, to serve the needs of the citizens. Better at, they can even anticipate the needs of the citizen. So if the city were to mine this data and develop a platform, there are five Cs that the report talks about. Uh, let me see if I can outline those five for our listeners. Number one, the first C is all about collaboration that we talked about across the various uh, uh, departments of a city, I think we spoke about an example of water management and traffic management and how they are uh, interrelated. Uh, so that is the first C, collaboration across the departments of the city. The second is, how do you use the platform to effectively serve the needs of the citizens? So the second C stands for the citizens. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that using that unified platform, how can a citizen, such as you and me, either pay a bill or get a license for starting a business? And uh, this would require collaboration, uh, as we can imagine, across several departments of the city itself. The third uh, C is uh, about the colleges and the university systems. So how do you collaborate with them effectively in order for you to tap into the local uh, talent and the fourth uh, C is communities and neighborhood. How do I use the platform to effectively serve the needs of a community, neighborhood, provide them information related to their neighborhood? Maybe it is related to safety, it is related to health uh, about that particular community. And the fifth C is about the civic uh, tech space. How do you open up your platform, publish APIs that the companies can use, the private sector can use, in order to develop new applications, tools in support of your smart city agenda. So those are the five Cs. But when it comes to data, Mukul, I'm certain uh, you and I will say that uh, before city starts to collect your data and use it, they have uh, to get explicit permission from the citizens, right, an explicit opt-in is absolutely needed. Not just that, the city needs to explain to the citizens 
how they plan to uh, use that data in simple terms instead of throwing a 25-page document at us. And uh, in the end, cities need to be responsible guardians of citizens' data. Well, I, I agree with I couldn't agree with you more about the need for privacy. And actually, I wanted to, the next question I have for you is about a sixth C, and that is cost. Uh, obviously, you have a, a, a lot of expenses involved with uh, cities trying to become smarter, uh, which brings up the need for how do these initiatives get funded and how do you get your costs covered. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the different financing models that cities have used to uh, to fund some of these smart city initiatives and what are some of the pros and cons? It's, you're absolutely right, Mughal. <laughs> the cost and funding is by far the biggest challenge when it comes to funding any uh, smart city initiatives. So, of course, you know, federal grant is an option. Philanthropic grant, which is uh, the Knight Foundation, as an example, funded uh, some of the smart city roadmap study that uh, the city of Philadelphia did and published last month, as we all know. But these grants are not sufficient if you're looking at a citywide uh, uh, smart city program. There are a uh, couple of other options that have been toyed around. One is uh, possibility, poss possibly increase uh, taxes um, and thereby increase the revenues of the city to fund some of uh, these programs. But uh, most of us may not be in favor of uh, getting our taxes increased. Uh, right. The second uh, option is how do you, as we just discussed, the city has access to so much of our data. Can they sell it? Can they monetize the data? Mm. I'm not actually in favor of that option until we understand that there are adequate privacy and security measures that are in place by the city. So that uh, gets us back to an option that is an age-old technique but it has been improvised recently. It is public-private partnerships. Uh, the way it has evolved lately is uh, there is also the repayment model that has been built into this uh, um, partnership now. Uh, let's look at a couple of examples. One that comes to mind is Kansas City uh, with its citywide uh, IoT effort. And uh, the municipality in this particular case funded approximately 3.7 million. The private partners, uh, they funded about 12.3 million, so brought the total to about 16 million. The city used $16 million to install 25 kiosks around the city. And uh, the kiosks provided uh, free internet access to the citizens as they are getting uh, out and about in the city, uh, through which they can also access city-related information. The city also uses these kiosks as an emergency alert system. Now, the revenue model for this comes through advertising on these kiosks. Mm -hmm. And the initial calculation has shown that both the city as well as the private partners that funded this initiative will be able to recoup most of their costs in less than five years, which is pretty impressive, right? The second example is uh, Portland, Portland, Oregon. And uh, the initiative, however, is a pilot instead of uh, 
a full-fledged uh, smart city program like in the case of Kansas. So the city could uh, pretty much uh, live with the federal grant for this pilot where they are using IoT-related uh, sensors that go on top of the traffic signals as well as many of the light poles in the city. Mm -hmm. The objective of this uh, project is for them to figure out how they can um, improve some of the stalled traffic. They can reduce uh, stalled traffic in these major intersections of the city, thereby improving the air quality. So that's the pilot scope. And if uh, it goes well, they want to figure out how to get the funding for the entire city itself. So the initial funding came from NIST, National Institute of uh, standards and technology, and all of the sensors that are needed for the major intersection were provided by the private partners. So those are the funding approaches that the cities have looked at, but predominantly it has been the public-private partnerships with clear repayment models. So once the funding has been raised, what are some of the best practices in the way the funds can be allocated across different priorities that the cities have? Mukul, uh, you're absolutely right. Funding is by far uh, the most challenging thing uh, for the mayors to contend with when it comes to uh, smart city programs. Uh, but there are three ways, uh, at least, that they should consider uh, before they go about spending the money. Uh, number one, which is uh, pretty much a no-brainer, which is to say pick programs that uh, uh, give the maximum bang for the buck or the greatest return on investment. Uh, let's take an example. And if you take a city, um, approximately, depending on the size of the city, you'll find uh, nearly 10,000 to 300,000 lights. And uh, this is, in my opinion, a very valuable part of the infrastructure because uh, it already has uh, power supply built into them. It's at, at an elevation of nearly 30 feet. So imagine if you put some sensors on top of these light poles, they can be used to uh, monitor foot traffic. Based on that, determine when to turn on the lights and turn off the lights. Uh, it can also be used to monitor the traffic, uh, detect uh, crimes. So with just a, uh, a few sensors on each of the light posts, the city can achieve at least three things. Uh, increase the safety and security of the citizens, ease congestion, traffic congestion, and the third thing uh, that they can do is save energy costs for the city. So that is a project uh, that would provide a maximum uh, bang for the buck, a good ROI. So choose projects that uh, give a good uh, bang for the buck. The second one I would say is before spending the money, think through any of the regulatory changes uh, that are needed. As an example, Columbus, Ohio plans to roll out uh, electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. Uh, the question that the city has to ask is, how do they work in the context of the existing infrastructure? What regu uh, regulatory changes have to be made? So that is the second aspect to consider. The third one uh, that the cities should consider, in my view, is the procurement process itself. How do I streamline procurement? If uh, funding is the most difficult thing to do, the second most is uh, the procurement processes in the city. They are pretty long. Uh, 
they're also quite uh, laborious. So there are a couple of approaches that have been uh, uh, proposed in order to ease the procurement process. Number one, consider cooperative procurement. As an example, if there is another city that is already working with that vendor, see if you can piggyback uh, on that contract. The second is uh, consider uh, driving the initiative at a state level. As an example, in January 2017, uh, the state of Illinois, um, the Department of Transportation in the state of Illinois uh, launched an RFP for smart uh, street lighting uh, across the state. Now, uh, once that RFP is awarded, uh, the cities can use that existing contract instead of having to negotiate uh, uh, the terms and conditions on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. So those are the three things to consider before the cities uh, start to spend the money. Right. Now, which cities at the U.S. do you think have done a good job? of implementing smart city initiatives. I know you referred to a few names uh, early on in our conversation, but if, especially if you think like challenges like climate change, uh, which cities do you think are doing a good job and what can other cities learn from the example? Yeah, so there are quite a few cities in U.S. Uh, that have been, uh, that have driven several initiatives that are smart, uh, that are sustainable, and uh, there are some that are tackling uh, climate change as well. Uh, let's take a few examples in each of these areas. Uh, uh, two cities that I want to talk about, one is Atlanta, Atlanta and another is uh, Orlando. Uh, in the case of Atlanta, the reason I'm biased towards Atlanta is because I met the uh, chief operating officer of Atlanta, the previous one, Dan Gordon, a few years ago. And uh, he had this clear vision on what he wanted to do for the city. Mm -hmm. And thanks to him and thanks to the former mayor, Kasim Reed, they put together several uh, smart city initiatives in the areas of uh, transportation, uh, safety, um, uh, I would say also communication with uh, not just citizens, but also the businesses. So there were several such initiatives, and uh, Atlanta plans to use uh, what they call as the, the short spotter IoT acoustic technology in order to reduce the viol uh, violence in the cities uh, due to guns. And uh, uh, this particular technology will help them to dispatch the officers to the crime scene in real time without anyone having to call 911. Uh, so that's that's a cool example, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, Atlanta also plans to install solar panels in many of the large buildings in the downtown area, and that would be towards their sustainability initiative uh, to be used to increase their renewable energy capacity as as well as uh, reduce energy wastage, as well as greenhouse, greenhouse uh, gas emissions as well. Orlando is a quite quite an interesting city, Mukul, as we all know, right? I mean, with uh, the Disney World, and it has about uh, 75 million visitors every year. And uh, the mayor says that uh, it has the highest hotel and uh, car rental rates uh, 
in the entire world. Mm. And the director of the smart city program says that his city gets uh, people with all sorts of driving habits. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the things he says is, you know, you don't need expensive technology. Even some simple fixes could go a very long way when it uh, comes to making the city smart. And he gives an example of this uh, mobile uh, uh, parking alert systems that the city has developed. And uh, there was a lot of resistance, I believe, initially because uh, the city officials were worried that uh, revenue coming out of the fines, parking fines, would go down. It did. However, uh, what the city saw was increase in revenues because it allowed people to pay for uh, the parking through their mobile devices. Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, both the citizens and visitors were happy and because they could avoid uh, uh, fines, as an example. Orlando is also a city quite unique because it's the only city in Florida that has um, passed an ordinance saying that all of its public buildings will publish uh, both their energy and uh, water consumption. And uh, the city of Orlando also has committed to ensuring that all the buildings will use renewable energy 100% renewable energy by 2050. And what is even interesting is that the municipal operation will transition to renewable in another decade, which is by uh, before end of 2030. So those are some of the examples of cities that are not just focused on uh, infrastructure, but they are also focused on citizens and sustainability. And to your question on climate change and are there any cities that are tackling climate change, I think uh, Atlanta with the solar panels is, of course, an example. Uh, San Francisco recently received an award for its uh, zero waste program that it launched in uh, 2002. Uh, since uh, the program was launched, it has uh, an incredibly uh, incredible reduction in their uh, in the landfill um, rates, diversion rates of about 80%. Mm -hmm. San Francisco also every year uses 100 million fewer plastic bags. Mm -hmm. So with many of these initiatives, I think San, Fr Fr San Francisco is well on its way uh, to achieve the zero waste goal by 2012, by actually 2019, end of this year. I see. Well, just a couple of last things to wrap up. Uh, <clears throat> you referred earlier to public-private partnerships being so critical. I was wondering if uh, you have any examples of cities that are doing a good job uh, working with the talent in the companies in, the, uh, in, 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 in their geographic boundaries uh, so as to enhance the impact of their smart city initiatives. Uh, are there any examples of that kind that you uh, you can think of, and what can companies learn from cities and companies learn from those? In yes, uh, ab ab absolutely, Mukul. I think uh, collaboration with the private enterprises and the universities, academic institution, is a way uh, by which uh, uh, the uh, cities can tap into local talent. One of the new concepts, uh, thanks to Brookings Institution, is uh, th this concept of uh, innovation districts. Think of them as geography clusters that brings together academic and scientific research institutions, mm -hmm. um, 
private sector and uh, uh, small and big, right, uh, small entrepreneurial uh, organizations, uh, enterprises that are large, and then public incubators that are focused on uh, doing research, and all of these geographic clusters that are placed in amenity-rich uh, uh, urban cores, mixed-use urban cores. And simply put, these are geographic areas that uh, uh, drive the economic development for a particular city. There are several examples. Uh, the one that I will mention is uh, by uh, Mayor Andy Burke and his initiative in Chattanooga. He set up the Chattanooga Innovation District that has helped the city uh, drive the growth uh, to absolutely the next level. It's one of the best places to live in the country, top 100 places to live nowadays. And uh, some of the examples of uh, companies that have been successful that were built in that uh, innovation district that come to mind is uh, Access America Transport, which was eventually bought over by UPS. And the same founders also created another startup called the Lampost Group. So these innovation districts are a way uh, for uh, companies to create the clusters uh, to drive economic growth, but also uh, drive partnership across the various entities in the city. One, one last question, Sita, and that is uh, we've focused quite a lot in this conversation on the American experience of making cities smarter. Uh, I wonder if uh, we could compare, take a look now across the pond at Europe and see how does the American approach to developing smart cities differ from the approach you see in Europe? And are there lessons that each continent can learn from the other in terms of how to make the world more sustainable and more inclusive? And uh, you and I know, Mukul, that uh, Europe has been at this uh, uh, smart city program and initiatives, I would say, for some time a little bit longer than U.S. has been. Uh, in U.S., uh, the smart city programs typically have been uh, tied to infrastructure and economic development, and Europe being at it for a little bit longer, they are now focused on creating uh, citizen-centric initiatives. How do I make my cities more livable? How do I make my cities... Uh, where the citizens are happy, and sustainability is one of the key initiatives that uh, uh, Europe has been focused on. But I think Europe is also unique in the sense that it has uh, smaller countries. Uh, then you have the European Union. So there is a concerted effort between across communities, cities, and uh, the European Union itself to drive some of these smart city programs. And... Uh, and that, I think, is going to help them achieve their goal of 300 smart cities by end of uh, 2020, mm -hmm. and uh, so which is an ambitious goal, and I think they're on the way to do that. But you and I know sometimes it is never uh, late or it is sometimes good to be late to a party mm -hmm. because then that allows you to learn uh, from the lessons uh, that uh, someone else uh, has had. So in my opinion, I think uh, U.S. can take a lot of lessons from uh, how Europe has approached some of the smart city programs. But with uh, several of the initiatives across U.S. and the investment that the cities are making, I sincerely believe that um, U.S. is well on its way uh, to drive growth across uh, uh, 
major metros as well as uh, the smaller metros as well. Uh, I want to conclude with this, uh, Mukul, if I may. Um, as we look at some of these programs that are happening, uh, I believe that uh, it is the responsibility of uh, the leaders in the private and public sector and academic institution to collaborate effectively with the city leaders as well as with the communities to figure out how to make digital inclusion part of the agenda when it comes to smart city programs. Sita, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge Network. It's a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much, Mukul. It always is a pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.